Coming up in the Dan Cave, we get to talk football again. Four Seahawks rookies begin the season on the injured list. Is that a red flag? And speaking of rookies, I'll give you my list of the three who are most important as training camp gets underway. The Mariners' bullpen is a mess, we can all agree on that. But the pieces are in place already for the makings of a good one in 2020. I'll give you those names. And in the midst of a rebuild, should the Mariners be buyers before the trade deadline? Yes. But why now? I'll tell you. Dan Cave, next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Dan Cave. Um, as we get set to wrap up season one of the podcast, episode 41, for those of you who have listened all the way through, and I know that some of you have, because I can see the consistency of the numbers, uh, thank you for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, um, I'll talk a little bit more about it at the end, but there's some cool things planned for season two. It's a beautiful day. The sun has finally arrived. Summer may finally be here in the Seattle area as I look out the window of the Maple Valley Studios. And we get to finally talk about some football. And this is really kind of the the good and bad time of the summer because it's when it's the most beautiful time of the year in Seattle, July, August, September, although for those of you who live here, know that you are contractually obligated to never tell anybody that as I say it into a microphone to go out to the masses. But anyway, we try to keep that quiet because there's too many people here already and we need for people to stop moving here. Um, it's the best time of the year. It's beautiful. It's light late. Uh, the mornings are gorgeous. It's sunny all the time. The mountain is out and she looks beautiful today. But then you realize training camp starts this week for the rookies. Next week, the veterans report. So we're into full training camp. And then Seafair is the weekend after that. And that kind of signals almost the beginning of the end of summer. You know, then we're only a month away from school starting. And, and uh, so let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the positive. And that is that after about six weeks of the deadest time of the year, you know, they say the NFL... Uh, never takes a break, never has an off season. Well, it really does because June and the first part of July, there's nothing going on and it's murder. <laughs> I hate it. Um, we've had lots of Mariners talk, but we get to talk football again. So as I said, the veterans will report next week. Uh, the first full squad practice is the 28th, I believe, uh, the 25th. And then I'm actually going to my first training camp session on Monday, August 5th. And so um, I'll definitely have some thoughts uh, after I see them in person. Um, but until then, the rookies are reporting ahead of the veterans. And this may be the most important rookie training camp that the Seahawks have had in a long time. We know how important the draft was. We know how dynamic the draft was. 11 picks. Um, we talked about that uh, in depth. If you're new to the podcast and you're just catching up on the rookie class, you can go back and listen to some of the episodes around the draft where we get a little more in depth about um, uh, what I liked about the class, uh, which is a lot. But news came out this week that three of the draft picks and four rookies overall, it includes Demetrius Knox, um, offensive tackle out of Ohio State, who... He was injured when they when they signed him as an undrafted free agent, was working back from an injury issue. So this that came as no surprise. But three, three key rookies are going to begin the season on the PUP list, which stands for physically unable to perform. And it's got some people freaking out. One of them is second-round draft pick Marquise Blair, uh, Ben Burr-Curvin, the outside linebacker out of the University of Washington, and then guard Phil Haynes from Wake Forest. And... I think the reason some people are freaking out is because they could see immediate contributions from all three of those guys, especially Blair. I I believe Blair was drafted to be a rookie starter. I think they have a specific role in mind for BBK to get on the field right away in certain situations. And both of them being unable to go at the beginning of rookie training camp 
is a little concerning until you look a little deeper. So Blair is still recovering from a hamstring injury that kept him out of rookie minicamp. So we know he's been working on that for a while. And the thing that I want to emphasize about the pup list is the early season pup list. If, if you're placed on the pup list going into the regular season, you have to miss uh, six games. Uh, it's mandatory. It prevents teams from using the pup list to gain another roster spot for a week or two uh, and stash guys that way. You'll remember Ed Dixon began last season on the pup list, so he didn't make his debut until week seven or eight. In the preseason, it's different. They can remove players from the pup list any day. They could turn around tomorrow and say, hey, we're taking Marquise Blair off the pup list. He's a full go. He's going to be out at practice. But in the interim, it's a smart thing to do. If he's not ready to go 100%, it allows them, they have a 90-player roster maximum. But now with these four rookies on the pup list, really they have 94 spots. And so they can carry an extra body, which is important for evaluation, obviously, but just to just to keep guys fresh too and have enough bodies to get through training camp and, and all the drills and all the practices there. So I'm not overly concerned about Blair at this point because we know he's been rehabbing this injury for a couple of months. So there was no surgery. It wasn't a hamstring tear. Let's just pump the brakes on being concerned about him not being out there um, because it's quite possible he could be full go uh, by midway through training camp. Uh, Burr Curvin's a little bit different situation because he had sports hernia surgery. He did get on the field during rookie minicamp and was very impressive. And then um, had this issue. So he had the sports hernia surgery. They know exactly how long that takes to recover from. He should be good to go at some point during training camp. And again, while I think his long-term role on the team is, is very important, his impact as a rookie was going to be situationally. So not a huge deal if BBK isn't on the field for the first couple of weeks. Haynes is a mystery. And of all these guys, he's the biggest concern simply because he made it through minicamp completely healthy. There were no injury concerns at all. In fact, he got a chance to shine and take reps with the ones almost every day during the minicamp portion of OTAs because Mike Eopati was banged up at times and also the team wants to manage him because he has an injury history and make sure he's fresh for the season. So Haynes... Um, surprisingly, because I think a lot of people would have thought Ethan Posick would have been next man up at left guard, Haynes ran as the number one left guard through most of OTAs. So the fact that he shows up on the pup list when there was no indication, no reports of any injury uh, is concerning with him, but let's wait let's, let's wait and find out more. Uh, once we know more and they start practicing in full over the next couple of days, uh, we should get an update on Haynes um, moving forward. Because it's just the rookies this week, I wanted to focus there. And I came up with a list of three rookies to watch. And and what I mean by to watch is it's three guys that I think need to have a good first couple of weeks in order to show that they'll be able to contribute as rookies. And what I was looking for is, is, is guys that aren't really the obvious picks. For instance... DK Metcalf is not on this list of three rookies to watch because I think that's a given. I think they they felt like they got a steal getting him at the end of the second round. They never expected him to be there. Um, he has tremendous upside. He has as much physical talent as any wide receiver they've ever drafted. Um, and they're going to carve out a role for him no matter what. Say what you want about his detractors, about not being able to run a full route tree or whatever, he doesn't have to right away. Despite the fact he's working extremely hard on that in the offseason, working with some of the most renowned wide receiver coaches in the country, um, he'll improve at that. But what he can do now, he can do at an elite level. And that is his release off the line of scrimmage is advanced for his age. He's extremely physical. And he has elite size and speed. They'll figure out a way 
to make him a part of the offense. So I think that's a given. But his draft mate, Greg Jennings, not so much a given. Missed all of OTAs and minicamps with an injury. And so he has something to prove. It's Despite the fact he was drafted in the fourth round, and a lot of people thought that that was... That was a bit of a steal for the Seahawks that many analysts had him rated more in the third round, maybe even late second. Uh, Tremendous upside there as well. Highly productive college receiver. Really fits the Seahawks offense. But there's other guys competing for that spot. Um, John Ursua uh, in the slot, the second round or the seventh rounder out of Hawaii. Uh, Amara Darbo, the third round pick from a couple years ago, who who reportedly is finally 100% healthy. And John Schneider and Pete Carroll have gone out of their way to bring up his name at every turn this offseason when talking about the receiver group. Um, There's Jaron Brown. There's David Moore. There's a lot of guys there. It's not a given. Greg Jennings isn't going to be handed a spot on the 53-man roster just because he was drafted in the fourth round. He's going to have to uh, be healthy and have a good camp because he's the type of guy that I don't know if you can get him through to the practice squad. There would be some demand for his services for a team um, that's lacking um, a fifth wide receiver and wants to get their hands on a guy with upside. So I think Greg Jennings needs to come out in those first couple of weeks and prove that A, he's healthy, uh, B, that he's learned the offense, and C, that he looks like a guy with an advanced enough skill set that he can contribute as a rookie. Because it's you know, we can talk as much as we want to about the impact that Doug Baldwin's retirement is going to have on this offense. But the bottom line is we have the guys we have. We have Tyler Lockett and a bunch of young guys after that. Two or three of them have to step up. And Jennings has an opportunity to do that, but it would behoove him to make a good first impression and an early impression in camp. Uh, Cody Barton's another one. Um Linebacker out of Utah, and and here's what I want to see from Barton. When they drafted him, they talked about how he had the skill set and the football mind and the gym rat mentality to play all three linebacker positions, and that's where his value really was going to be. Um, he's got the size and the speed and the coverage ability to play all three positions. He could potentially be the long-term answer as a successor someday to Bobby Wagner in the middle. I think that's his most natural fit. But he played a lot of outside backer at Utah as well and really excels at covering tight ends and backs out of the backfield. Uh, Just go to YouTube and watch last year's Utah game against the Huskies, the regular season game, not the Pac-12 conference title game, but at Husky Stadium, regular season matchup, and he's all over the field and some of the plays he makes you wouldn't believe that he's 6'3", 245. But then once the OTA started, Carroll backed off that a little bit and said, look, we, we don't want to put too much on his plate you know, with Bobby Wagner standing on the sidelines while they negotiate a contract. Barton was running primarily in the middle. At some point in the next couple of weeks, I expect Bobby Wagner to sign his extension and be back on the field. I want to see how ready Barton is to play multiple positions. Because if they're going to stick to the idea of just having him learn the Mike linebacker spot as a rookie, then he's not going to be on the field that much. But if he can play weak and strong and move around, then I think Cody Barton could play a significant role um, as a linebacker his rookie year, especially in light of K.J. Wright having some injury issues recently. We still don't know 100% what's going on with Michael Kendricks. Um Barton's ability to play multiple positions will directly impact his opportunities to get on the field and how much um, he can contribute to the Seahawks' rookie year. And then Haynes, he looked all through the offseason like a guy who was good enough to start as a rookie. Big, strong, good technique, excellent at the second level. Um, has some growing to do as, as a pass protector, but every college offensive lineman does. Um, but a mauler in the run game and really exceeded expectations in the offseason. And then he comes up with this mystery injury. So this first week or two, we need to see how significant this pup thing is for him. If it's going to hold him back. 
if it is, if, if it's some sort of significant injury, and, and what worries me about this, it reminds me of the Ed Dixon injury last year where they sign him as a free agent, the tight end from Carolina, and then he shows up to training camp and he's got a quad injury and they're holding him out, and at first it just looked like it was, they were being cautious. And the next thing you know, he's not playing until week seven. If that happens with Phil Haynes, then it, we're probably looking at a redshirt year. But if he can be back on the field sometime in the next two weeks and take another step forward from what we saw from him in the offseason, um, if Mikey Upati goes down, Haynes could be the guy. So those are three that I'm I'm looking for right off the bat. Um, I almost put John Ursua on this list just because it didn't really seem to turn a lot of heads or blow people away in the OTAs. Um, but when they drafted him, it sure seemed like they had a role carved out for him. And and they you know, they moved back into the second round and gave up a 2020 pick to do it. You'd, you'd hate to see him waste that pick. Uh, but they do think something's there. Um, you know, if I had taken, if I'd made this five rookies to watch, he would have been on that. So um, it's going to be fun. We get to see football players in Seahawks uniforms on the field this week. And uh, couldn't be happier. Let's go back to baseball because that's where we're at, right? And we can all agree on a couple things when it comes to the Mariners. <laughs> um, the offense has been streaky. At times, it's been good enough to carry them. Um, the starting rotation has been inconsistent at best. Um, but the bullpen has been the story. And not not just the back end of the bullpen, but since the Mariners have committed to using the start or the uh, the opener philosophy and technique to break up those uh, those soft tossing tossing lefties that they have in the rotation, um, those guys have struggled too, and it's it's an easy criticism and it's the most common one. Man, that bullpen's terrible. Man, the bullpen's terrible. Man, the bullpen's terrible. And it's led to some consternation uh, from fans, and and I've seen a lot of fans online questioning, uh, yeah, this bullpen's nowhere near good. So if the Mariners think they're going to be, as Jerry DePoto has stated, interesting by the end of 2020 and a contender, um, or at least have the look of a team on the verge of being a contender in 2021, man, you got to put a bullpen together. And I just don't see it. But if you look a little deeper, two points really. One is, a bullpen is the easiest thing to build in an offseason. And Jerry DePoto in Arizona and California and in Seattle his first couple years has proven pretty adept at, you know, if we were going to list his strengths, that would be near the top of the list. Putting a bullpen together. Taking converted starters and putting them into roles. It was his idea. One of the first moves he made as general manager of the, of the Mariners was to take uh, that lanky, uh, single-A, uh, Cuban international signee, Edwin Diaz, and turn him from a, a starter into a reliever, and look how that worked out. Uh, but he's been pretty adept at both identifying free agents to sign in the bullpen market and also some under-the-radar guys, um, buying low on guys that are coming off a shaky year and are available uh, at a much lower cost than they would have been in their prime um, putting things together. So most GMs in baseball are capable of doing that. You can go out and piece together a bullpen largely through free agency. If that's the missing piece of putting your team over the top to contention, you can do it in an offseason. But what I want to talk about today is how there are more building blocks and pieces in place for a pretty darn good bullpen foundation for the 2020 Mariners than many of you might think. And I want to be specific. First, I'll start with the names that you might know. Brandon Brennan, Connor Sadzak, and Austin Adams are three guys that I know they're injured right now, so they haven't been pitching. None of the injuries are serious. There was some concern with Sadzak that it was going to be an elbow and might be a Tommy John situation. No structural damage. It's a flexor mass. You know, they may take it easy on him the rest of the year. Because what he showed after the Mariners picked him up for a song from the Texas Rangers was 
easy 95 to 97 and a nasty slider. Same with Austin Adams. It's funny to me now that the Nationals let Austin Adams go. And now as the trade deadline approaches in 10 days, the Nationals are in the running for a playoff spot. And what are they looking for more than anything else? They're out looking for bullpen help. And there was a report yesterday that they want controllable bullpen arms. Well, Austin Adams has four years of club control left. And once the Mariners kind of refined what he was throwing and changed his pitch pitch selection a little bit, he showed really one of the most dynamic sliders in baseball. And um, his injury was minor, just a grade one lat strain. He should be out on a rehab assignment soon. Brandon Brennan is another one. They got him in the Rule 5 draft. Cost him nothing. Um, They kind of eliminated a pitch, refined his approach a little bit. Again, easy 95 to 97, good breaking ball, um, had some stretches of looking, like at times he looked like our best bullpen arm. Um, he is on a rehab assignment in Tacoma right now, should be back with the big club soon. So those three guys, and in some ways it may be a blessing in disguise that they all suffered minor injuries. Otherwise, you know, Depoto may have flipped one or two of these guys if they were pitching well at the deadline to contenders looking for cheap bullpen help for a stretch run. And now they will most likely, all three of them, um, end up being Mariners through the season and uh, figure into next year's bullpen. So those are three guys. Another one we saw the return of this week is Sam Tuivalala. And he was acquired last year in a midseason trade for Seth Elledge. And Tuivalala has as much upside and is as much of a chance to be a significant member of that bullpen uh, for many years as anyone on that roster. 25 years old, throws in the mid-90s, good breaking stuff, good control, can go multiple innings, and I think that's the role the Mariners had in mind for him last year. He was pitching extremely well last year after he was called up or came over in the trade, and then he ruptured his his Achilles. Um, He had a couple setbacks in his rehab, not because the Achilles was flaring up, but because he had some other dead arm issues and things. 11 months later, finally made his debut the other night, gave up a couple of weak uh, ground ball base hits, but threw the ball well, was in the mid-90s again, and um, he's a guy they really took their time getting through the rehab process and getting back to the Major League roster because he's such an important part of this bullpen moving forward. He could be a Josh Hader type, and I don't mean as good as Josh Hader because not many are, but the way the Brewers use Hader to come in sometimes in the fifth inning to face the toughest part uh, of an opposing team's lineup, or sometimes in the seventh inning and pitching the seventh and the eighth. Although now this year they're using him more as a closer. Tui Valala um, can be a guy that if you're in a ball game, it's a close game, your starter's struggling, he's throwing too many pitches, it's the fourth or fifth inning and you have to go to the pen. Tui is a guy that has been groomed his whole career. Uh, he could come in and pitch two two plus innings in the middle of a game to help shut down the opposing team's lineup and then set the stage for the back into your bullpen. He's back now. Eric Swanson is back with the big club. And as much as I really wanted the Mariners to hold off on putting him in the bullpen after he came over in the James Paxson trade, I think it's the right move now. When the trade was made, um, starting pitching was still a glaring weakness in the Mariners' system. It has dramatically improved over the last few months in both uh, terms of both guys developing and growing like we've seen from Logan Gilbert um, and LJ Newsom and um, acquisitions uh, Justin Dunn and how how good he looks um, Justice Sheffield and how he seems to have fixed his mechanics and been dominating double a and we'll see him back with the Mariners sometime soon uh, the draft they just had and how how excited we are about those college starting pitchers at the top, how good George Kirby has looked in his first couple appearances with Everett, and how advanced he looks. Um, that the depth in our starting pitching pool in the minors is so dramatically improved that now I think that's where Swanson fits best. That and the fact that we saw when he was up that he just lacks a third pitch. Doesn't really have a feel for off-speed stuff. Uh, can spot the fastball, and out of the bullpen, his velocity ticks up. And so he hits 96-97 out of the pen. As a starter, he was working more 92-93, and he's got that really good slider. And I think Eric Swanson, I don't know that he'll ever be a closer or maybe even an eighth-inning shutdown guy, 
But as a guy that can come in in the sixth and the seventh inning uh, and shut a team down, or again, similar to Tui Valala, can go multiple innings, I think that's where he belongs. And, and moving him there, he's a little bit older. He'll be 26 next year. I think he's a guy you can count on in that bullpen next year. Here's a couple other other names that you may or may not know. David McKay. He's the guy that's infamous for um, DePoto acquired him from the Kansas City Royals organization at the end of last year along with two other guys for a dollar because the Royals just didn't have roster spots for him. Um, he's been up with the Mariners a couple of times this year. He's kind of rode that shuttle between Tacoma and Seattle. But in 39 innings in AAA Tacoma this year, 65 strikeouts. He's got a plus curveball, a little bit of fastball command issues, but if he can tighten that up a little bit, he can be um, a guy that challenges for that bullpen next year. We've talked about Sam Delaplane. He was our prospect of the week a couple of weeks ago. He was recently promoted to AA in 17 innings pitched in Arkansas, he's been just as dominant in Double A as he was in High A Modesto. 17 innings pitched, only one earned run allowed, five walks, 30 strikeouts. Sandell Plain could see Seattle this year. He's got a good chance to be part of the bullpen coming out of spring training next year. Joey Gerber is another guy who was just recently promoted to Double A because he was too good for the Cal League in Modesto. He's thrown 12 innings. Um, or he's thrown eight innings with Arkansas so far. He struck out 12 there. Really good breaking stuff. Throws in uh, in the mid-90s, can touch 97. Um, Gerber is a guy that was uh, a top 10 round draft pick um, last year and could move quickly. We could see him in Seattle next year. Wyatt Mills is another one. Came out in that same draft out of Gonzaga. Uh, sidearming really drops down, gives you a different look. Um, he struggled at times last year, but this year in Double A, um, in 39 innings pitched at Arkansas, 14 walks, 47 strikeouts in those 39 innings pitched. Jake Haber is a guy that was found in an independent league. Even though he's just 24 years old, they stuck him in Double A. Um, 21 strikeouts and 15 innings pitched. He has some excellent breaking stuff. You've heard the name Art Warren for a couple of years. He's similar to to Dan Altavilla who I could also put on this list, but he just, boy, every time he flashes like he did a month ago where he was hitting 100 miles an hour again uh, and look back to his old self, then he gets hurt again. They did find uh, no structural damage in Altavilla's elbow, um, but he'll be working back from a flexor strain as well. Art Warren has had his issues with injuries. He's 25 now in AA, but he has uh, really good stuff. Throws in the upper 90s with a good, Good slider uh, in 21 innings pitched this year. He has struck out 27, appears to be healthy now. He probably needs to see AAA before the end of this year in order to kind of hang on to his status. And then don't forget about Hunter Strickland. Hunter Strickland is throwing in uh, AAA right now uh, on a rehab assignment. They want to see him go at least three times before they call him back up to Seattle. He was the closer at the beginning of the year, looked great in the Japan series. Uh, but he pulled, he injured his lat, and uh, it was a pretty severe lat strain because he stayed in the game even after he felt something go. But Strickland's a guy with really dynamic stuff, a lot of experience, pitching the World Series for the Giants, uh, only making $1.3 million this year, and he's got two years of arbitration left. So the Mariners can non-tender him in the offseason if they don't think he's he's uh, worth hanging on to. But he's a guy that you could, if you get a good arbitration number because he missed some time this year, um, could be the similar plan next year to what they probably thought they were going to do this year. Get a good first half out of him, maybe as your closer, and then trade him at the deadline for something. Uh, he could be part of that too. So that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, 13, 14 names, including all of Altavilla. That's twice as many names as you need to fill out a good bullpen. Plus, you would expect them to maybe be active on the free agent market as well. So there are some pieces to work with. There are certainly more quality pieces to work with for the 2020 bullpen than there were coming into 2019 in the system. And there's one more. Because our prospect of the week this week, Reggie McLean, um, Mariners 13th round draft pick out of Missouri in 2016. He was a starter. I saw him pitch in Everett his rookie year. Um, had some control issues. Where have you heard that before? It's kind of the, kind of the issues with issue with most mid-round or uh, any college pitchers that were kind of taken after the third 
third or fourth round. Command is probably the reason. Um, but this year has made the full conversion to the bullpen and really took to it right away in double A. And he's been in Tacoma now for the last couple of months. And in his last 10 appearances, Reggie McLean has only given up 11 hits, five earned runs, 11 walks, and 23 strikeouts in 21 innings. Really controls the zone, throws strikes, um, throws in the mid-90s, has a good slider. Reggie McLean, I would expect to see in Seattle uh, sometime in the next month or so. I think he's earned that promotion, and he could be, he's a little old at 26 for AAA, so I think they need to figure out pretty quickly what they have in him. Um, but he could be part of that mix for 2020 as well. Obviously, right right now with the Mariners, all the focus is going to be on what happens over the next 10 days. The trade, trade deadline is coming up quickly, and it's different this year. Remember, there is only one trade deadline this year. There is no uh, waiver trade process anymore in the month of August. It used to be that uh, July 31st was the last day you could make trades just directly with another team without a player having to go through waivers. Um, and then in August, you could you could pick up guys, um, and sometimes pretty significant guys, in many cases because maybe they were making too much money, and so they would get through waivers. Remember, the Astros were able to work out a trade with the Detroit Tigers two years ago for Justin Verlander because his, his contract at the time was so prohibitive for teams, and he had struggled that last year with Detroit, so nobody was willing to claim him on waivers and take that whole contract. Um, and then once he cleared waivers, the Astros were able to work a deal um, to get him, and, and then look how that's worked out. So that is no longer. It is July 31st, and then no more trades for the rest of the year. And Jerry DePoto believes in some comments that he made um, the other day. He detailed how he really thinks that's going to end up meaning a last-minute frenzy. The team's are going to wait until the last possible second before they make deals because they want to make sure they're getting the best price. But because they know that after midnight on August 1st, they can't make any more trades, they may reach for a guy and pay a little bit more for him or pay something for him when before they would have held off. And this could really benefit the Mariners because what the Mariners are selling is not Justin Verlander. It's not top and dynamic difference makers. There's no one the Mariners have to sell right now that can put a team over the top and be the difference between possibly winning a division and winning a World Series. They have complementary pieces. Rowena Elias is a good example, a left-hander that throws upper 90s that can close for you, but that's not ideal. He can go multiple innings um, and, and is a really versatile player bullpen piece, making less than a million dollars with a couple years of club control left. There's value in that. But in past years, he might have been a guy that maybe didn't get dealt on the 31st and might have gone into August. Certainly, you could say that about Mike Leak. Because of the money still owed, about $11 million after you take into account uh, what the Cincinnati Reds picked up in that trade when they sent him to the Mariners. Um because of his contract, he's kind of the poster child for a player that would have been an interesting waiver candidate in August. But now, if a team if a team wants or needs a back-end starter, and they're up against the clock, and they don't want to pay what it's going to take to get a Noah Syndergaard, or a Danny Duffy, or... Um, or... Uh, a Trevor Bauer, they don't want to pay that. Or they miss out on those guys because it's a seller's market right now. There just aren't a lot of those arms available. Marcus Stroman from the Toronto Blue Jays, there's maybe four or five and that's it. So if you miss out on one of those guys or you don't want to pay the trade cost and you're looking at the clock and there's 10 minutes to go, hey, I can get Mike Leak for this and the Mariners are going to kick in $10 million and all we have to give up is a double A AA starting candidate who's 25 years old and Mrs. Bats, who the Mariners are probably going to convert to a reliever anyway. Uh, 
it, it, I think it works in the Mariners' favor. And Jerry Depoto believes it works in their favor. And while he typically is the kind of guy that likes to get a jump on the market and get deals done early, um, I think he's content to wait and sit back this year. And I think you still will see multiple trades uh, over the next week and a half. Hey, there's Allie chipping into the podcast, as she often likes to do. Um, maybe uh, she has some thoughts on the trade deadline, perhaps. Uh, as I stated on last week's episode, I I think I feel like Domingo Santana is going to get traded because I think there's going to be a market for him. And um, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic came out and said as much this week that there is, the way he worded it was, there are enough teams with real interest in Santana that a deal might get done. And that's a guy, again, because of the hard deadline, the Mariners may prefer to hold on to Santana and make some decisions in the offseason. Um, you know, kind of once they see how the rest of the season plays out, how some of their young outfielders develop, how Mitch Hanniger comes back from injury. Um but because of that deadline, a team needing a bat, especially a team in the American League that can use him at DH from time to time or as their primary DH, he's such an enticing bat with a couple years of affordable control ahead of him um, that the Mariners may just get an offer that, given where they are in the rebuild process, they can't refuse. So um, I think he's the one guy um, that, could really be the most interesting trade the Mariners can make. There's been a lot of talk of Omar Narvaez. I just don't see any situation where uh, the Mariners would trade Narvaez. Um, good catchers are hard to come by. They really don't have a guy who projects as their everyday starter next year unless Tom Murphy might be that guy. Um, again, if a team offers something that the Mariners can't or, or doesn't want to turn down, then certainly Narvaez can be traded. But I think... If I were to put odds on it, I would say uh, there's a 60% chance that Santana will get traded. Narvaez, I'd put it about 30. Um, but that leads us to uh, a special segment this week because I have talked the last year since I started this podcast about um, leaving me a voice message. And you can do it through Anchor. And, and I think that part of the reason that I haven't gotten anyone to do it yet is it's kind of hard to find. So I want to give you uh, the exact address where you can go to the website and leave um, and leave me a voice message. And what you do is you just you just hit the button and you speak into your phone and you ask me a question, something you want my take on, and then I can insert it into the podcast. It just comes straight to me. I get a notification that I have a new message. Um, and that address is anchor.fm, as in FM radio, slash the Dan Cave. All one word, no hyphens, no underscores. So anchor.fm slash the Dan Cave. And you'll see, you'll see that you can subscribe. There are three buttons. Subscribe to the podcast, support the podcast, which I would love for you to do. Um, and then leave a voice message. And I got my first one this week. So let's fire that up now and see what it is. Hey there, Dan. This is Todd from Bainbridge Island. I just had a quick uh, question for you. So I was wondering, you think the Mariners are going to keep Vogie? Uh, you know, he's a hard hitter, and I don't know if he's going to stay around the Mariners that much longer. So I want to know, what's your opinion? You think we're going to keep Vogie? Ah, uh, well, thank you, Todd from Bainbridge Island. I think my favorite part of that phone call is that my first voice message ever to the Dan Cave is from someone who is clearly from New York but is a Mariner fan now. And that just warms my heart. So thank you, Todd. Thank you for calling in. We hope we hear from you again. Here's my take, and I've gone back and forth on this, but now I'm 100% sure, and I'm so glad that Todd asked this question. Daniel Vogelbach's not going anywhere, and I think he's become, he's forced himself into a primary role in this rebuild for a number of reasons. One, he's cheap. He's at the minimum. He's not even arbitration eligible until 2022. Two, he appears 
epitomizes control the zone. If you follow the Mariners, you've heard that mantra. It, it applies to both what they want their pitchers to do and their hitters. All those teams that have driven us crazy for the last 10 years, the Red Sox, the Oakland A's, the Astros now, because they just grind out at-bats and they they don't swing at balls that they can't handle. And they wait for their pitch. And, they, and, and furthermore, they make you throw them their pitch. He epitomizes that. For a big guy, for a big guy who hits home runs, and actually when he came to us from the Cubs in that deal for Mike Montgomery because he was blocked by Anthony Rizzo in Chicago, and because Cubs are in the National League and they don't have a DH, so there wasn't the flexibility, he was known as a guy high on base percentage, but not a lot of power. My recollection is, when we got him, he was kind of projected as a 25 home run a year guy, but a guy that was going to take pitches, walk, high on base percentage. And he's become someone who has added power to his game and really epitomizes the modern way of thinking that batting average is meaningless. To the point that I just read that this this morning, the Baltimore Orioles put together a promotional video that they show in the ballpark to their fans during games where they're trying to kind of bring fans into the fold, the general fan into the fold of analytics. And they have an instructional video explaining why batting average doesn't mean anything. It's all about slugging percentage and OBP, which is on base plus slugging. Daniel Vogelbach's hitting 239, and five years ago, 239 would have been unacceptable. What? He's a 240 hitter? He's not valuable. But he's getting on base at a 372 clip. And he's slugging 512. He has 62 walks to 83 strikeouts with 23 home runs and 57 RBIs. He hit two three-run homers last night after scuffling for a week or 10 days. I heard some murmurs even. Saw some things on Twitter. Boy, Vogelbach's really struggling. You know, he's done even. I saw Jason Churchill retweet a guy that said, he's done. The league's figured him out. Not quite. He has a true skill set. And he has proven himself now over a long enough sample size because he has finally gotten a chance to play every day. So... I think he's, I don't think anyone on the Mariners roster is untradeable if the right deal comes along, but I think he's on that short list of guys that they want to hang on to because he exemplifies the organization's commitment to to those types of at-bats and that kind of approach at the plate. He's a guy who it's well documented that last year he was resistant to some changes the organization was suggesting, and that's why he didn't get more at-bats down the stretch last year, even after the season was was over. Um, he adopted those changes this year. His presence in the clubhouse, the enthusiasm with which he attacks the game, the fact that he's a, a minimum salary player that's not even arbitration available until 2022, and that he's put in the work to become a serviceable first baseman. When he first came up, the book on him was, and it was accurate, you didn't want him playing first base. He's capable of playing first base now. On this roster anyway. Is he going to play much first base once Evan White is ready and is an everyday regular? No. But that's when you can DH him. I've said it before. I think ultimately Jerry DePoto and Scott Service would like to use the DH spot for some flexibility. They don't want a full-time DH. That's kind of the movement nowadays. Not a lot of teams do, which also limits his trade market, which goes right back into my answer that I think he's staying put. I think Vogelbach has made himself. You talk about making the most of an opportunity. It kind of looked like he was a guy that may have missed his chance and was going to be overlooked. It wasn't going to be part of this new movement. But he has forced himself into the equation. He's made himself 
a key player in this rebuild, I believe. So that's how I feel about it, Todd. Thanks for your call. I hope we hear from you again. And again, if any of you want to call and leave voice messages to be included in the show, that's anchor.fm slash the Dan Cave. And I want to end on this note. There has been talk of the Mariners making, being buyers at the trade deadline, going out and acquiring a player that would require having to give up a couple of decent prospects. And if that happens, and, and I've already kind of heard because those reports are out there, I just heard it again today from Churchill that he has it on good authority that as far back as June, Jerry DePoto was trying to have those conversations with other clubs, was out there being aggressive, trying to target and acquire certain players that would require giving up some value. And I wanted to put it out there because I want you to start thinking about it. And I want you to think about it differently than you ever have as a Mariner fan because your first instinct is going to be, what the hell are they doing? I don't know why I'm so afraid <laughs> to swear on this podcast because what I wanted to say was, what the fuck are they doing? Because um, that's the way I would talk if I was talking to you face-to-face about the Mariners. But regardless, that will be the first reaction of a lot of people. What are they doing? Why are they now trading Dom Thompson-Williams and LJ Newsome, you know, for for a triple-A third baseman? And here's why. And and I understand the mindset. Here's how the, the common mindset goes. Well, they say they're not going to be potentially a contending team until 2021. It's kind of, and all the evidence kind of points to that being realistic because now with recent promotions, they are really, their double-A team is as loaded as any minor league team has been in Mariner history in the last 25 years. So you, if you just assume that the double-A guys are two years away, boom, there you go, 2021. So let's say that's the year. Well, that's when you get aggressive in free agency. That's when you go trade from your surplus to get a bigger name or an established guy to put you over the top. There's a problem with that. It's backwards thinking. It's it, it puts you at the mercy of the marketplace. You don't know what the marketplace is going to be a year and a half from now, either in free agency, because you don't know who's going to get extended or not, or in the trade market. You don't know. Bad GMs and bad teams think that way. Well, we're going to wait till 2021. We're going to let all the young guys develop. Then we're going to see what we have, figure out what we need to add to it, and that's when we're going to go for it. That's not the way to do it. I know that's the way fans think. That's not the way to do it, and it's not the way I can promise you this. That's not the way Jerry DePoto thinks. If there's a player out there right now that Jerry DePoto believes can make a difference for the Mariners in 2020, 2021, and beyond, that he thinks can be a significant piece. If there's an opportunity to get that player right now, he's going to explore that. And if there's a deal there to be made, he's going to do it. He's not going to trade Jared Kelenic. He's not going to trade Logan Gilbert. Not unless it's, I should never say never, not unless it's for an elite prospect. But there's a chance that if a trade like that happens, you may not be that familiar with the player coming to us. Just breathe. If that happens, just breathe. You may freak out at first. Because the names we trade away are more familiar are more familiar to you now because you have done things such as listen to this podcast and read about these prospects and you're on board with the rebuild. So you start to develop those attachments. Man, I can't wait to see this guy. Can't wait until this guy's a mariner. And if we trade a couple of those names for someone you're not that familiar with, you may freak out. But keep in mind, 
No GM is perfect. And even the really good GMs probably would be happy to bat 50-50 on trades. Jerry Depoto's track record since he took over the Mariners on trades is pretty spectacular. Uh, the guys at Soto Mojo uh, did a cool piece a couple weeks ago where they really broke it down, and they were only able to identify four trades that were clear losers out of the 90, what is it, 94 trades, I think? 94, 95 trades that DePoto's made since he took over? The trade that I keep going back to is I think about the the acquisition of Marco Gonzalez. Happened late in the year. He was coming off his first full year of being back from Tommy John surgery. Wasn't putting up great numbers. We traded Tyler O'Neill to get him, who at the time was our top prospect. But that's like saying he was the smartest kid in the room with Down syndrome. And I'm sorry if that's offensive to anyone. That's just a line that I heard a few years ago from a stand-up comedian, and I, I thought it was a, a really funny line. So, uh, or, or here's maybe a less offensive. It's like saying it's the tallest guy on your under-six-foot basketball team. So, our minor league system was trash three years ago. So, Tyler O'Neill being the top prospect, we all got attached to him, and we freaked out when he was traded for Marco Gonzalez, who we weren't that familiar with. But look how it's turned out. O'Neill is bouncing between AAA and AA, hasn't really found a foothold. Now there's talk that he, the Cardinals would be willing to trade him because they have a surplus of outfielders. Meanwhile, Marco Gonzalez has established himself as our best starting pitcher and a guy that that um, really could be a part of this foundation for years. Um, he's not an ace. Maybe on a good staff isn't more than a three, but a valuable piece of a rotation and uh, that was a really shrewd trade. And that was a trade where DePoto was thinking ahead. He, he didn't acquire Marco Gonzalez to anchor the rotation the day we got him. So just keep that in mind. If they make a, a trade that's more of a buying trade, an acquisition trade, take some time, look into the guy we got, and then tune into the podcast because I'll definitely be doing some reaction. So next week is the finale of season one of the Dan Cave. I'm going to put together some of my best and worst takes uh, from the first season. We'll recap some of that. Um, I'll pull the curtain back a little bit and unveil some new features, some surprises that are in store for season two, which will premiere the first week of August. But over the next 10 days, any big Mariner trades, uh, I will do... Uh, reaction episodes um, probably be short in nature stripped down a little bit but um, certainly if anything significant happens I uh, I will react to it here on the podcast so if you haven't already hit that subscribe button so you get notifications when new episodes drop otherwise I will talk to you next week thanks again so much for listening to the podcast please share it with your friends and let them know about it if you have any other sports nerds that are out there um, bigger and better things planned for season 2 so until then Go Mariners, go Seahawks, and go Cougs.